Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. Do you struggle to stay mentally focused? I bloody do. The world is a fast-moving place and there are more demands on our attention than ever. But when I am able to find a bit of time and space to step away from as much of that crap as possible, not only am I more productive, but I'm calmer and less anxious too. My guest this week is the writer Johan Hari, author of a new book called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, in which he investigates the reasons why our brains are so overstretched and how that impacts on, among other things, our mental health. I've known Johan for years and I've loved his other books, uh, Chasing the Scream, which is about addiction and the war on drugs, and Lost Connections, which is about the social causes of mental illness. I was delighted to catch up with him and hopefully find out how I can get my focus back. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Johan Hari, welcome to The Reset. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you, Sam. I'm actually getting weird flashbacks to how we first knew each other, which is, what is it, 20 years ago we used to do that show Flipside TV? Is oh, it, it must uh, be something like Yeah, it must be at least 20 years ago. So the weird yeah. thing about Flipside TV, I had not thought about it in, oh God, 20 years since until we. I was just thinking about doing this. I was thinking that, Actually, it was weirdly prescient. It was basically Gogglebox before Gogglebox, wasn't yeah, it? We would watch yeah, live TV, a group of us, and it was quite a weird mixture of people. It was you, me, Lauren Laverne. I can remember quite a weird mixture of people. Ricky Gervais of- did it once. Yeah, I remember that. Um, there was also Matt Lucas. There was various different comics, and Richard Bacon would host it. Yeah. Or sometimes Ian Lee. I wonder if those tapes still exist anywhere. But I, oh, funny- they, I think they do. I think That's they do. Yeah, I would love to see them. I mean, not me, because I can't bear to look at my extremely round Pringles man face. But um, <laughs> but it would be super interesting to know what happened to that. Yeah. So I feel very bonded to you. We've done a ridiculous amount of live television together. Yeah, it's uh, funny, though. Very it? odd circumstances. So Yeah. Yeah. They were good times. You've got an exciting new book out called Stolen Focus, which I'm enjoying reading. Tell us about how you came to start researching the attention crisis. I started for a really personal reason, to be honest, Sam, that I noticed my own attention was getting worse. And I felt like with every year that passed, things that require deep focus, like reading a book, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. Do you know what I mean? I could do it, but it was getting harder. And I could see this happening to so many of the people around me. And I started looking at some of the research on this, you know, the average office net worker now focuses for only three minutes on any one task. Um, For every one, I think you and me are the same age, for every one child who was diagnosed with attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who are given that diagnosis. I was trying to think about what's happening to us, right? Because when I felt bad about my own attention, I would blame myself. I'd say, you know, you're being weak, you don't have enough willpower, you're not being strong enough. But then I started looking at the young people in my life who I love, a lot of whom were just kind of like whirring at the speed of Snapchat, you know, when nothing still or serious could touch them. And I thought maybe there's something deeper going on here. So I ended up over three years going on this really big journey all over the world from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne, and even to places that don't begin with the letter M. I don't know why I suddenly went all alliterative there. Um, Uh, And I interviewed over 200 of the leading scientists in the world who've studied attention and focus, different aspects of attention and focus. And I learned that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been supercharged in the past, in recent times. Mm -hmm. And I came to believe 
we're actually living in a really quite serious attention crisis that can be solved, but only if we understand what's happening to us. We've got to understand your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by these big and powerful forces. And we've got to defend ourselves against those forces. And then we've got to take on these forces and stop them doing what they're doing to us. So explain to me how that actually happens. I mean, are we literally talking about, I'm sat at my laptop, I'm trying to write an article to a deadline, but I keep checking Twitter and the email keeps pinging. Is that is that essentially the, the sort of problems that we're looking at here? So when I started writing the book, I thought that that's exactly how I thought about it. I thought about it in that narrow way. Now, that thing you're describing is very real. It's an important part of the book. But actually, the causes of our attention problems go really widely from the food we eat to the air we breathe, from the sleep we don't get to the hours we overwork. There's really broad causes in the way we're living of this attention crisis. Now, in a funny way, that so there's a lot to understand about the technology itself. I'm sure we'll discuss that and a lot we can do to put that right. But in a way, the way I started thinking of it, it's almost like if you picture these invasive forms of technology, whether it's Twitter or TikTok as a virus, right? Mm. Now they have their own power and they would be powerful in any situation, but they come along at a moment when our collective immune system is down, when we were already doing loads of things that damage our attention. Think about something as simple and obvious as sleep, right? So uh, there's really overwhelming evidence that sleep is essential for you to be able to focus and pay attention. When you're sleeping, your brain is repairing. It's healing itself. It's cleaning itself. It's cleaning out the metabolic waste that builds up throughout the day, taking it down to your liver, getting it out of your body. You need eight hours sleep a night. But now, on average, we sleep an hour less than we did in 1942. And children sleep 85 minutes less than they did. And there's huge scientific evidence that deeply damages your ability to focus and pay attention. If you stay awake for 19 hours your ability to focus and pay attention is as bad as if you got drunk. And 19 hours doesn't seem like that much, right? Um, and I was going to talk more about sleep, but that's one of the many ways in which there's all sorts of factors in the way we live that are coming together. And then on top of that, you've got this increasingly invasive technology that is explicitly at the moment designed to hack our attention. I can talk about why. Um, and so those things come together to produce this uniquely bad outcome of, of our attention deteriorating. So we've got to separate out these causes and deal with each of them one by one. So that thing you just mentioned, that feeling of, you know, you're trying to work, but you go onto Twitter, right? Which I'm guessing most people, you know, um, listening have experienced. I think it's worth thinking about some of the reasons why that's so bad for your attention. One of the people who helped me to really understand this is one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a guy named Professor Earl Miller, who I went to interview at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And, and, he's, he's, and he explained to me, look, you've got to understand one thing about the human brain more than anything else. You could only think about one thing at a time, consciously, one or the most two. That's it. This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain hasn't changed in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on any time scale that you or me are ever going to see. You can only think about one thing at a time. But as a society, we've fallen for a mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. But what happens is when Professor Miller's colleagues get people into labs and they get them to think they're doing lots of things at the same time, they monitor them to see what happens. And it turns out when you think you're doing lots of things at the same time, you're actually juggling. You're juggling very quickly between them. You're focusing and refocusing and refocusing and refocusing. 
And it turns out that comes with a really big series of costs. The kind of fancy term for it is the switch cost effect. There's a huge amount of scientific evidence for this. When you try to do lots of things at the same time, it turns out you do all of them much less competently. You, you make more mistakes, you remember less, you're less creative about what you're doing. And there was a study, there's loads of research on this, but there was one study that really brought it home for me. It's a small study backed up by the wider research. Hewlett Packard, you know, the printer company, they got, um, they got a scientist to come in to do an experiment with their workforce. So what he did is he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just do whatever your task is and uh, you're not going to have to answer email or phone calls. And the second group was told, do whatever your task is and you're going to have to answer your email and phone calls. And it was a heavy amount of email and phone calls. And at the end of it, this scientist tested the IQ of both groups. Mm. The group that had not been distracted scored 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been distracted. To give you a sense of how big that is, if you or me smoke to fat spliff now, I know you don't do this anymore, but if we spoke to fat spliff right now, your IQ and my IQ would go down by five points, right? So at least in the short term, you'll be better off sitting at your desk smoking a spliff, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than you would sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and, and um, doing and being constantly distracted. But most of us are living in that mode of constant distraction. This is why Professor Miller said to me that we live in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of this switching. So you think about that scenario you mentioned, Sam, you're doing your work, you switch off to Twitter for one minute and you switch back to your work. It feels like nothing, right? Mm. But my Professor Michael Posner proved that if you're interrupted, even if you interrupt yourself in that way, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the same level of focus that you had prior to the interruption. But loads of us are never getting those 23 minutes free, right? So we're constantly living at this degraded level of focus where we make more mistakes, we, we, we fuck up more, we remember less, you know, and, and this is a, one of the key 12 factors that we need to understand. Let, let me ask you, you're talking a lot about the way in which it affects our capacity to be the best we can be mentally and, and focus on, on tasks properly, do them properly. That seems to relate a great deal to our productivity. But talk, talk to me more about the mental health, the impact this has on our ability to be calm, content, um, you know, and, and, and not anxious. Yeah, it's a really important question that I think about a lot in the book. I would just say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's playing the, learning to play the guitar, setting up a business, being a good dad, whatever it might be. That thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained attention and focus. You couldn't have done it without it. And when attention and focus break down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down and your ability to solve your problems breaks down. If you can't pay attention to something in a sustained way, it's much harder to figure out what's going on, put it right, or to achieve whatever goal you've set yourself. And I think this is so important for mental health. And there's lo loads and loads of aspects of what I write about in the book that are important for mental health. But one of them is just as simple as when you can't solve your problems or achieve your goals, it's almost like you become a kind of stump of yourself. You can sense what you might have been if only you've been able to apply yourself, but you can't get there. And so, of course, you feel more anxious, you're more likely to be depressed, you're just considerably more likely to be unhappy. And this is why we have to 
embark on this journey of understanding what's being done to our attention and putting it right. And there's all sorts of practical ways. Um, and it was so interesting to me because, so I'm just gonna swap that around. Um, the, the, a lot of the, sorry, let me just do that in a second. A lot of the techniques that I learned boost attention, also boost mental health more generally. So I'll give you a specific example. I learned a lot for the book about what are called flow states. So mm. everyone listening <clears throat> will have experienced a flow state, right? I thought about this a lot when I took three months. The journey that led me to think about this is I took three months completely off the internet for the book. I went to this little place called Provincetown in Cape Cod, um, which I think you would like it, Sam. It's um, <laughs> Provincetown is a little resort town where, to give you a sense of what it's like, more than one person makes a full-time living there by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about cunnilingus. So it's a great I'm in. Day. I'm, in. I'm, looking up, I'm looking up the, an Airbnb now. <laughs> exactly. You would like it. You would definitely like it. And um, so I spent three months there. And it's really interesting because I was amazed by how much my attention came back. Mm. You know, I had no smartphone. I had no laptop that could get online. Um and, I, you know, because I, I had thought for a long time, maybe my brain has just deteriorated. You know, I've gotten older, maybe my brain's just not as good. And my brain were, you know, my brain went back to like it was when I was a teenager. I could sit and read for like eight hours a day and focus. But there was a moment I had a real crash. And it was about, I try to remember, three weeks or a month into being there. And I was walking down the beach. And I saw these people on their phones the whole time just not even looking at Provincetown, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world, and just staring at their screens or using Provincetown just as a backdrop for selfies. Mm. Normally when I see that, I want to go up to people and go, oh, you're wasting your life. You're not being present <laughs> at your own life. But suddenly I felt this urge to go up to them and go, give me that fucking phone. I want it, me, right? Because yeah. I felt this tremendous hunger. And I realized for so long, I had become acculturated to getting the, the kind of thin, insistent signals you get on the internet, right? Mm. No ordinary social interaction floods you with hearts throughout the day, right? Mm. But of course, social media does that. And when they were gone, this is a very pretentious way of putting it, but the, the French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir said that becoming an atheist was like the world going silent. Mm. And it felt like the world had gone silent, right? And I felt this real crash. And I was like, okay, so when you leave behind these forms of distraction, initially you create a vacuum, right? There's a relief and then you create a vacuum and then you've got to fill the vacuum with forms of attention. Mm. And that's the, the, it's not enough just to get rid of the distractions, right? You've got to actively power up your attention. And one of the ways to do that is by exploring flow states. So everyone listening will have experienced a flow state. A flow state is when you're doing something and you really get into it. You get into the zone and time seems to fall away and your ego seems to fall away and your attention just flows effortlessly into that thing. It's not an effort. It's not like mm -hmm. studying for an exam. You're just in it, right? And everyone will have had that experience at some point, whether it's making bagels, playing the guitar, doing brain surgery, whatever it might be. For me, it'd be writing. For you, I suspect it's broadcasting, whatever it is, right? And so I wanted to understand, because flow, flow states are a really important form of attention because they're the deepest form of attention that human beings can provide. And most importantly, it's the most effortless form of attention. So I went to go and interview the man who pioneered the science of flow states an incredible, and studied them for 50 years, an incredible man named Professor Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who sadly died not long after I met him. I think this is the last interview he ever did. And I, of course, what I was trying to understand, okay, if flow states are like a gusher of attention inside us, 
how do we, how, where do you drill to get that gusher, right? Yeah. And he had discovered many things about this, but I think for the purposes of what we're talking about, there were three big things that I think are really worth thinking about. So anyone listening, if you want to maximize your chances of getting into a flow state, there's no guarantee, but if you want to maximize your chances, there's three things that you should do. The first is you've got to choose one clear goal, right? If you're trying to do two things at once, three things at once, four you will never get into flow. Um, switching kills flow. You've got to choose one thing. Mm. The second thing <clears throat> is you've got to choose a goal that's meaningful to you, right? So for me, it would be writing. If I tried to, I don't know, climb a rock, I would not get into flow. I mean, I might fall off the rock and blood would flow out my body. But, I, you know, if, if I tried to play the guitar, I wouldn't get into flow because it would sound like a cat was being slowly tortured. Uh, so you've got to choose a goal that's meaningful for you. And the third thing is you've it really helps if you choose something that is at the edge of your abilities, at the edge of your comfort zone. So let's say you're a rock climber, a medium ability rock climber. You don't want to just clamber over a garden wall. That's not going to get you into flow. It's too easy. Mm. Equally, you don't want to suddenly try to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It's going to be too overwhelming. Mm. You want to choose a rock face that is slightly higher and harder than the last one you climbed. So when you do these three things, you choose a clear goal, you, you make sure it's a meaningful goal to you and you choose a goal, you try to do something that's at the edge of your abilities. You are much more likely to get into flow and to be able to pay attention in a way that comes easily and is the deepest form of attention you can provide. And that's obviously important for attention. It's also important for mental health. Uh, Professor Cheek sent me high. You have no idea how long it took me to learn to say that, by the way. Professor, I literally practiced it for a whole fucking day before I met him. <laughs> Professor Cheek sent me high. Um, discovered that flow states are also really important for general mental health. The more flow states you experience, the happier you are. And people who are chronically deprived of flow states are significantly more likely to be unhappy or depressed or anxious. So I think this is something that's really worth everyone uh, exploring and trying to build into their lives. It's interesting you say that. I've read you uh, writing about flow states. So I find that really fascinating. And I can think of moments where I've been in them. And, and, you, and the funny thing is when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, you actually come away with a bit of a buzz from a situation like that in the same way that you might come away from a workout with endorphins pulsing through. There's a sense of achievement and just, yeah, you you definitely get an endorphin release or something similar from being in that state. Well, you feel competent, right? Yeah, that's it. We live in an environment that makes so many people feel incompetent. Mm. Of the factors that are thwarting our attention, one of them is just our ability to get into flow is being deeply thwarted because Think even just about the very first step, you've got to just do one thing at a time. Now, loads of us are living in an environment where we can't do one thing at a time at the moment. And yeah, a big part of my book is because, you know, for, for their work, they have to do lots of things at the same time, which is a disastrous way of trying to work. So the really important thing to understand about this, I think, is what I learned is we've got to tackle this problem at two levels. The first level is we've got to protect ourselves and our children as much as we've, and the last quarter of the book is about what's happening to our children. <clears throat> and there's all sorts of things you can do in your personal individual life that will massively improve your attention and focus. I'll all give right. you an example. Yeah, tell us some now before, because I know you're going to move on to the more macro level yeah. of resistance. So tell us about the micro level. So I'll give you an example. You can't see the sound from the angle that my laptop's at, but just over in the corner there, my phone is in something called a K-safe. So a K-safe is a plastic safe. You take the lid off, you put your phone in, you put the lid on, you turn the dial at the top, 
and it will shut away your phone for anything between five minutes and a day. Mm-hmm. On my um, laptop, I've got an app called Freedom that just cuts you off from the internet for however long you tell it to. So you activate it and your laptop just cannot get online. Or you can use it to selectively cut you off in certain websites. If, you're, um, if your uh, issue was, I don't know, Twitter, for example, then you yeah. can just get it to cut you off from Twitter. So I permanently have Twitter, Instagram, blocked on my phone i have this sounds very grand but i send my tweets to my sister to do i don't do them um this i know somewhere that sounds like weirdly regal but anyway um the so that that's one example there's obviously lots more that um i go through in the book but it's really important to understand the interaction between the first level and the second level because i am passionately in favor of all the individual things that we can do to protect ourselves and our children at a personal level i also want to be really honest with people that will only get you so far. Now that can do a lot, but it will only get you so far because then you will bump into, you know, the way Dr. James Williams, who's one of the leading experts on attention in the world, put it to me when I interviewed him in Moscow was, so I'd explained to him that I'd been in Provincetown, my attention got much better. And before I left Provincetown, I was like, God, I I never want to go back to this shitty way of living. I'm never going to go back to it. And I got my phone back and within a couple of months, I wasn't quite as bad as I was, but I was closer to how I'd been before Provincetown than I'd been in Provincetown. And he said to me, but Johan, I can explain to you the mistake you've made. Thinking that the solution is for you personally to cut yourself off is like thinking that the solution to air pollution is for you to wear a gas mask. It'll give you some relief. It's worth doing. If I lived in Beijing, I would wear a gas mask. Mm. It's not solving the problem, right? Mm. You've got to go to the source of the problem. And at the moment, it's a switching metaphor from the gas mask. I apologize for the screeching sound of a changed metaphor. But at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all the time. And then they're leaning forward and going, do you know what, mate? Um, You might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And I'm strongly in favor of meditation as well, but I think we've got to respond and go, well, fuck you. Uh, you, you, you need, I'll meditate, but you need to stop fucking pouring inching powder over me. Mm. And we've got to deal with the deep systemic reasons why our attention is being invaded. And you're not just talking about technology here. Absolutely not. I mean, people, because people will say, well, look, social media, their technology is there. It's, we, we are not, we are not being forced to look at it. We need to work on our own ability to, to resist those sorts of temptations. And I'm sure there's, you know, you'd have an argument to counter that. But in any case, you're not just talking about the sort of dogged pursuit of our attention that, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of them are on. Absolutely not. Think about something as basic. I'll explain this more in a little while, but the if you ask me to, but... Um, the way we eat is profoundly damaging our ability to focus and pay attention. I'll talk about why in a minute, but even with social media, it's really important to understand that again, this surprised me because the way the tech companies want this debate to be framed is, are you pro tech or are you anti tech? Right. And of course, when it's framed that way, you know, no, we're not going to all join the Amish and give up our phones and our laptops, yeah. nor should we. So of course, then you just go, oh, fuck it. Just give in. We're, yeah. we're pro-tech. That is not the debate. The debate is not pro-tech or anti-tech. The debate is what tech designed in what way for whose interests, right? And there's an analogy. I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley interviewing some of the people who design key aspects of the internet and the things that our kids and us use all the time. And there was an analogy that really fell in place for me. It was a guy called Jaron Lanier. He's a technology designer. He told me this funny thing once. He said he used to be a consultant on loads of like dystopian films like Minority Report. Mm. 
And he stopped doing it because he kept designing these nightmare technologies that he thought were like a vision of hell. And then all these technologists would go, that's See a really it. good idea. How yeah. do we do that? And then yeah, they yeah, build yeah. it. Like, no, I mean, Minority not- Report is full of shit that if you watch it back now, which <laughs> I did for quite recently, you think, oh my God, this all came true. He's literally like, that's not what I fucking meant. So he literally stopped doing it, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, Jaron Lanier, who I interviewed in Berkeley, said to me, um, gave me an analogy that really helped. So I think I'm I'm 43 in a few days, Sam. We're the same age, aren't we? No, I'm much older, mate. I'm 47 this year. Okay, well, you're going to remember this a little bit better than me then. But the I had I just remember this. So it used to be normal that people would paint their homes with leaded paint, and people would put leaded petrol in their car. Right? I remember my mum putting leaded petrol in her mini. Right? Completely normal. And then it was discovered that lead profoundly damages children's ability to focus and pay attention, exposure to lead. It damages everyone's brains, but it particularly damages children and their focus and their attention. So what happened? We did not ban paint and we did not ban lead, right? You can see I'm in a room that's painted. I can see you're in a room that's painted. Yeah. Out my window, I can see cars going past that have got petrol in their tanks. What we did is we banned the specific aspect that harmed our ability to focus and pay attention. And there's something very similar when it comes to social media. So there's lots of things we can do to protect ourselves at an individual level, Mm. but we've ultimately got to take on this machinery. And to do that, we've got to understand the specific reasons why social media is currently designed to maximally invade your attention. Mm. And it's for a really simple reason. Every time you open Facebook or any of the social media apps, they make money in two ways. First way is obvious. You scroll down and you see ads. We all know how that works. Mm. Second way is much more important. Everything you do on Facebook is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence machinery, right? Mm. And it's figuring out who is Sam? What's, what kind of person is Sam? So let's say that you liked Kylie Minogue, Donald Trump, and you told your mum you just bought some nappies. So it's figuring out, okay, this is a man who likes Kylie Minogue. He's probably gay. This is a man who likes... Uh, Donald Trump. This is not. I'm not trying to out you. By the yeah. way, it's not you specifically. Yeah. But no, um, I would say that si- you've got sixty percent of this quite. Accurate, yeah. <laughs> you got, got. You know, he likes Donald Trump. He's probably right wing, mm. and he's bought nappies. He's probably got a baby. I'm they a right wing probably- gay dad. <laughs> <laughs> They're building up tens of thousands of information points like this because you are not the customer of Facebook. Mm. You are the product they sell to the real customer who are the advertisers, right? Because if I'm selling nappies, you don't want to sell to me. I don't have a baby. You want to sell to Sam. He's got a Mm. baby, right? So every time you open Facebook, they are gathering this information and making money out of you. And every time you close Facebook, those revenue streams go away. It's very simple, right? Mm. So all of that algorithmic power, all of that engineering is designed and geared towards one thing. How do we get Sam to pick up this device as often as possible? And how do we get him to scroll as long as possible? This is not my view. This is not the view of the critics of Facebook. This is what they themselves admit. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investor in Facebook, one of the two or three biggest initial investors, said, look, we designed this to maximally invade your attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids. That's what they say. Um, so a lot of the people I spoke to said, look, you can tinker at the edges. You can pressure them to put this functionality or that functionality right. But if you want to deal with the invasion of our attention caused by this aspect of the attention crisis, which is only one of the 12, mm-hmm. what you've got to do is you've got to go after that core 
question. And so Asa Raskin, for example, who invented a key part of how the internet worked and whose dad invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs, said to me, look, the first step of the solution is very simple. You've got to ban the current business model, just like we do not allow the lead industry to sell us lead paint and lead pe- leaded petrol. Mm-hmm. We must not allow these social media companies to have a business model based on maximally invading your attention and selling it to the highest bidder. Yeah. And I said to Asa and lots of other people in Silicon Valley said this was the solution. And I said to them, all right, but what happens the day after we do that? Do I open Facebook and it says, oh, sorry, we've all gone fishing. And he said, no, of course not. What would happen is they would move to a different business model, which would work very differently on your attention. So there's two very obvious ones everyone listening has experienced. One is a subscription model like Netflix. We pay a certain amount every month and you get your Facebook. Or it could be like the sewage pipes, right? Before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets. We had cholera. So we all paid to build the sewers and we all own the sewers together. You and me, we own the sewers of London, right? Um, It might be that like we own the sewage pipes together We might also want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our brains. Whatever the alternative model we choose is, the key thing is it entirely transforms the incentives of these sites. At the moment, these sites are designed to hack your attention, but because they want to sell you to the highest bidder, sell your attention to the highest bidder. But if they move to these different business models, suddenly that's not the incentive, right? The incentive is to figure out, suddenly you become the customer. So they're asking, well, what does Sam want? Oh, Sam wants to be able to pay attention. Okay, let's design it to help his attention instead of hacking it. Oh, Sam wants to meet up with his friends, not just fucking stare at their pictures all day. Oh, let's introduce a button that says, which of my mates are nearby and want to meet up? So they can push the button and you can push the button. It goes, oh, Sam, Dave wants to meet up. Right, you'll go for a pint. You can see all sorts of ways in which it could be redesigned, not to invade our attention, make us lonely, keep us staring endlessly at screens, but make us feel good. But we'll only get there if we change the business model. And that will not happen of its own accord any more than the lead industry would have stopped doing what it does. What you have to do is there has to be a, a, a movement to make them do it. Just lastly, uh, Johan, a more personal question really is how's your relationship with work and productivity? Because a lot of this comes back to how productive can we be? How focused and efficient can we make our minds and, and I, I know from, you know, previous things you've written that at times you've let your you you've developed sort of obsessive tendencies towards work, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. And how does that fit into all of this? I mean, you know, to, to what degree do you just want to do less or are you still someone who's sort of driven by, you know, it's almost like. What I get from a lot of this is, is, is you require your brain to be fully functioning and, fu- and, and fully focused and you need it to have that capacity all the time, you know. It's such an astute question, Sam. And I think about all the years, I'm trying to think about myself as I was when we first met all those years ago, because it's funny, you know how like self, self-help books, they have this format where they go, well, I had this problem, dear reader, I did the following five things. Now I don't have the problem. All you need to do is do the following five, those five things as well. Mm. And I don't write self-help books, partly because I think um, they're overly simplistic, partly because I think we actually have to have two levels. You help yourself and you have to change the, the wider environment. But also because the truth is I still struggle with a huge number of these things. And particularly the thing, a lot of the, a lot of the things we have to do to improve our attention are things that I struggle to do. So I learned a lot for the book about how 
rest boosts and improves attention. Um, I went to a company in New Zealand that moved from a five-day week to a four-day week for the same pay, and they achieved more in four days than they did in five. I went to interview this guy called Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's a expert on one of the leading experts in the world on organizational behavior. He's at Stanford. And he said to me, look, it's not difficult to understand. Just ask any sports team. Do you want any sports fan? Do you want your team to walk onto the pitch knackered and exhausted? No, you want them to walk on well-rested, you know, well-slept. Uh, people are more effective when they're well-rested. In terms of work for me, and you've gone to the, there's two, there's two of the causes that I really struggle with. It's not so much social media now. Uh, one is food. The way we eat is really harming our ability to focus and pay attention, partly because it causes big energy spikes and big energy crashes, which cause brain fog. Um, and um, you can't see this, but there's a KFC bucket behind my laptop. So gives you some sense of where I'm at on that one, um, particularly when I'm stressed. And obviously the book coming out is stressful. But the other one is work. And I think my relationship with it is very characterized. You know, I grew up in a, uh, uh, an environment where there was a lot of violence and addiction and, and, and madness. And the way that I coped with that when I was from when I was very small was by reading and writing all the time. Mm-hmm. So my primary way of being in the world. My, I remember one of my exes saying to me, we went, we were on holiday somewhere. And he said to me, you know, Johan, we're on holiday. You don't have to do a 10 point to-do list the night before. And the thought of not doing that, even for a day, just on a holiday was like, it's like he yeah. said, to me, why don't you hold your breath for 24 hours? It was unthinkable yeah. to me, right? And so because my primary way of coping with that then was to work all the time, it's such a deep aspect of my um, I mean, I can't think of a less pretentious way of saying it than my way of being in the world mm. that when I try, you know, like I'm, my boyfriend now is often, you know, trying to get me to relax and, um, and, and, and in one sense be, I, it's funny. I was about to say it wrong. I was about to say, and be less productive. But of course, I know intellectually from what I just explained to you mm-hmm. that I would be more productive if I relaxed more. But I really, really, really struggle with that. And um, it, it's hard. It's hard because, and some of it's a positive thing. It's like, God, life is so short. There's so many interesting books to read. There's so many amazing yeah. people to meet. There's so many great films to watch. But I guess if it's like a distraction, just like yeah. drink or drugs are for some people. You know, and, and I know that when I first stopped taking drugs and, and, and drinking alcohol, I probably quadrupled the amount of work I was doing. That's interesting. And, and exercise, because I just replaced it. I just replaced, you know, one, one thing with another. It was still quite damaging, you know, arguably not as physically damaging as drugs and alcohol, but, you know, mentally and emotionally, it was arguably as damaging because it was just something that distracted you from, I guess, your, your real feelings. Well, I think that's really important because one of the, in my, I gave a TED talk about addiction and, and one of the things I learned when I was doing the research for the book that's based on Chasing the Scream mm. is for me, and different people understand addiction differently and there's many legitimate ways of thinking about this, but for me, the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is yeah. too painful a place to be. I agree. So when addiction, and I think for me, work has played both roles. Work can, and I think work is most of the time now, a way of being present. Mm. 
mm. a way of enriching my life, being present. I don't mean enriching my life financially, but the you know it, it just having a, a a more interesting and full life. And sometimes it's about avoiding being present with distress, and um, you constantly have to monitor yourself. Well, I have to constantly monitor myself to think. Okay, today is the overwork because you're drawn to this really fascinating thing, and you just want to know absolutely everything about what's going on in this situation. Or is it that there's something distressing you that you don't want to be present with that you're trying to avoid? And it's very there's no there's no kind of rule of thumb with that. You just have to judge it situation by situation. But I think when we first met more than twenty years ago. I think the ratio would have been reversed. I think most of my work was about avoiding pain and distress, yeah. and 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 some of it was about meaning and purpose. So I think I've moved drastically positively along the spectrum, but I have definitely not got to a sort of nirvana-like, you know, healthy relaxation mode. No, I, it would be ridiculous for me to claim that. It's not true. Well, Johan, it's always a delight to catch up with you. Oh. I congratulate you on this latest achievement and look forward to more stuff, mate. Oh, thanks, Simon. I'm so glad to see you doing so well and you look so healthy and you sound so well. And um, yeah, and I really admire you. And um, I meant to say, I meant to read this thing that for my publishers makes me sound like a twat. Anyone who would like any more information about the book can go to www.stolenfocusbook.com where you can listen for free to the audio of interviews with lots of the people we talked about. You can find out what Hillary Clinton, Stephen Fry, Naomi Klein and many other people think about the book. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Um, Lovely to speak to you, mate. You're a king. Cheers, Sam. Take it easy. See you, mate. Bye. There you go, Johan Hari, as eloquent and as smart as ever. I can recommend the book, which is out now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. And if you want more of this stuff, please remember to subscribe to the Reset newsletter at samdelaney.substack.com. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.